Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 141 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Mark Tremonti, I wanted to remind you about all of the features of MistressCarrie.com. Not only can you find every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, every sit rep, and every episode of my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, But you can also check out my blog, shop in the official online Mistress Carrie store, and you can check out the concert calendar that's constantly getting updated with new tours and shows that are getting announced. Find all that and more at MistressCarrie.com. My guest this week, Mark Tremonti, is a guitar player, a singer, and a songwriter best known for his bands Alter Bridge, Tremonti, and Creed. He was in town recently on tour with Alter Bridge and Mammoth WVH and Red. The band is supporting their latest release, Ponds and Kings. So Mark and I sat down to talk about a lot of stuff, including his new love of power washing, his album of Frank Sinatra covers that he recorded for charity, his experiences with fatherhood, his charity work, being back out on the road with Alter Bridge, his songwriting process, collaborating with singer and guitar player Miles Kennedy, his life's work in raising Down syndrome awareness, his new challenge for John Connolly from Seven Dust to run the Boston Marathon. We talked about his guitars, and we talked about guitar legends Eddie Van Halen and Jeff Beck and so much more. Mark is definitely one of the hardest working guys in rock, and I was really happy that he was able to find time in his schedule to sit down and hang out with me. So allow me to introduce you to Mark Tremonti. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Mr. Mark Tremonti. How you doing, Mr. Scary? I've been trying to get you on the show for a while. Welcome back to Boston. I'm I'm on your show whenever you want. (laughs) You've been very busy. We have a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, Yes, ma'am. 
First of all, I spent a lot of time during the pandemic talking to Miles, and I found out the only reason he never wanted to do the interviews with me when you guys are out on the road is because he rests his voice. I used to think it was a personal thing. You're always willing <laughs> to talk to me. He wasn't. Now I know why. You know what? I'll, I'll talk to you all day long. I, I don't worry about my voice going because uh, <laughs> I don't think every night. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he definitely uses that voice a lot. So I'm very willing to give him the vocal rest. Can't wait to see the show. Absolutely. Uh, congratulations on Pawns and Kings. Thank you. When I talked to Miles, obviously we were kind of in the throes of, you know, the world being crazy. A lot of bands tried to do one of two things, echo the craziness that was happening or give fans a distraction from the craziness. What was your mindset working on these songs? Uh, you know, when we got into this record, I had already put out a Tremonti record and the Tremonti Sing Sinatra record. So I had already been, I kept, I got really busy. You know, I think for the first six months of the COVID uh, lockdowns and whatnot, I, I was just like everybody else, depressed and didn't want to do much. And then I snapped out of it and got super busy. So I've been, uh, by the time we got to Pawns and Kings, I had already been on extensive tours and recorded records. So I'm just back to normal with this record. You had six months to unplug your life in a way you probably haven't since mm -hmm. you were a teenager. How did the family react to dad being around all the time? Uh, it definitely had its silver linings. You know, I had, um, I had a baby girl during COVID. So that was amazing being home for her entire life up until, you know, a year and a half. And, uh, you know, I got, uh, you know, I got to be handyman at home and played a lot of sports with the kids in the yard. And, um, you know, it's, it definitely, there was definitely good parts of, of that lockdown, you know, as, uh, it was a lazy man's dream come true. You could just sit around and do whatever the hell you want all the time. But, uh, you know, I only did so much of that. I tried to stay busy. I, I've always said that, you know, if projects that you wanted to get done didn't get done by the end of COVID, it's not because you didn't have the time. It's because you're lazy. Absolutely. 100%. Tell me about the honeydew list at home. Guys like Mike Mushok from Stain and St. Asonia told me he tiled the bathroom. Did you discover a new... Uh, skill that you might not have known you had before yeah you know i i had my uh my friend who's a contractor come over to my house and i went through the house and showed him all the stuff i needed to fix and uh he'd be like all right you need uh this for that you need that for that and i would make this big list of like 28 things i needed to do and um fix it all i painted my entire house i painted the entire exterior of my house um that took i don't know i probably took three weeks to do it, which was, it was fun. You know, it's, I, I had fun. It's like, uh, I found out that I love pressure washing. <laughs> it's such a immediate satisfying thing to do. Uh, paintings the same way. So, I, you know, some of it was great. I would just put my he headphones on or my earplugs in, listen to some Frank Sinatra and paint the house. You know, it was great. You and I have talked about our shared Italian upbringing and there are some things when you're Italian that you you don't sass mm. and you don't F with Sinatra. Talk to no. me about the pressure of not screwing up this Tremonti Sing Sinatra record because as an Italian guy, the bar is high for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, um, 
you know, a few years back, I would um, listen to Frank Sinatra and, and just sing along. And I was like, you know what? I want to, uh, I had one of those nights where I just went way down the rabbit hole and listened to a bunch of tracks. And uh, just like when I was a young guitar player, I want to play guitar like this person. I said, I want to sing like Frank Sinatra. So I practiced for years and then um, didn't know if I was ever going to do anything with it. And the only reason I had the balls to do it is because I did it for charity. You know, um, I think when you do something for charity, you can do whatever the, whatever it is you want, nobody's going to come down on you for it. You know, what, what are they going to say? You, you, you did this terribly. You, you raised, you raised $50,000 terribly. You know, nobody's ever going to say that. So um, when I went into the studio, all my friends were saying, aren't you terrified? You're going to be stepping into the studio with Frank Sinatra's band uh, singing his parts. And I said, no, I'm not, I'm, I can't wait to do it. I've practiced harder for this than anything I've ever practiced in my life. I couldn't spend another minute preparing for it. And uh, like I said, we're doing it for charity. So um, whatever happens, happens. You know, it was, uh, and I'm, it's probably the, one of the most proud moments I've had in my career. The artwork for the album in front of the old neon signs, is that at the Neon Graveyard in Vegas? It is, absolutely. It's a great place. Perfect place for a photo shoot for this record. I went there the last time that I was in Vegas because I just thought, wow, that would be really cool. And walking around, there were people taking wedding photos and Instagram influencers taking selfies. And when I saw that artwork, I was like, that's got to be where he took that picture. 100%. We did. We we shot there and we also shot, um, God, what casino was it? Um, I forget it. Um, wherever Frank Sinatra had his personal dressing room, I think his manager said uh frank won't play here unless he has a suitable dressing room so they built him this awesome green room and it's got frank sinatra on the door and um i don't think anybody's really allowed in there except for you know on special tours and i got to go in there and take photos in his dressing room um you know it's it it's funny to see how he had it set up he likes carpet around the toilet um so imagine a carpeted toilet all the all the piss and all the for some reason he liked it so it was a carpeted uh, bathroom. Um, they had the bottle of Jack Daniels, Frank Sinatra, J uh, Jack Daniels sitting on the counter in the in front of his mirror. Uh, pictures of Ava Gardner on the walls. It was it was pretty cool. Do you mind talking about the inspiration for doing all of this charity work and talking about your daughter Stella and yeah. and how you got inspired to get involved? Absolutely. So when I was singing along with Frank Sinatra. I didn't know what I was going to do with it until my daughter was diagnosed with Down syndrome before she was born. And then I, I had read so many books about how charitable Frank Sinatra was. He raised over a billion dollars for charity. And I thought, you know, why don't I do a record and raise money and awareness for Down syndrome? Because that's going to be my new life's purpose. That's, that's really my new life's purpose. Um, we've almost raised a million dollars so far since the records come out. So we've, we've made some big movements. We're, uh, We've got some serious talks going on with some, um, you know, that I don't know if I'm allowed to reveal it yet, but there's some programs we might be putting together that are going to really be game changers. Not only is it your life's purpose, but now you're asking other people to take a chance for charity. And I wanted to talk to you about this because when you and John Connolly made that video, part of my heart sunk for John because you challenged John from Seven Dust to run the Boston Marathon for you. Absolutely. 
Now, when you said you can do anything for charity and no one can criticize you for, you know, how poorly you do it, in 2019, I ran the Boston Marathon for a veterans charity. And I finished in six hours, 24 minutes, and 50 seconds. Wow. Horrible. <laughs> or, I mean, how, it's, it's what, 16, how long, how many miles, 30 miles or something? How do you not miles? know how long it is? You asked John to run it for you. <laughs> how many miles is it? 26.2. That's crazy. It, it, to do that at all is, is really, really impressive. I couldn't do it. And, and I had a lot of medical kind of problems as a kid. So I've read some articles with you talking about what it's like to be a parent and have a child having to go through surgeries and stuff. And I had a lot of surgeries as a kid and never in a million years, especially growing up around here, I'm the one broadcasting from the finish line of the marathon. And everybody at one point or another that grew up here has been drunk on the sideline of the marathon going, I could run that someday. I did it. It's hell on earth. Oh, I'm sure. So uh, we, we need to talk about John's challenge from you because I have begun to talk to some of your mutual friends and there's a prediction. I want to see where you fall on it. John and, and you have been friends for years and years. You're, you might as well be family now. Absolutely. And he has become a machine. Oh, he is. He's addicted. And so I talked to Chris Daughtry. I talked to Clint Lowry recently. And we talked about this marathon challenge and John. Do you think John is going to finish the marathon in less than half the time it took me to finish it? I think... Uh... If that's possible, yes. I think whatever he does for his, uh, I think he's going to finish in the top of his age group. I think he's going to, if if that's how they rank it, you know, because um, he's he's been doing marathons and um, for years now, and he always crushes it. And he's John is driven. He's disciplined. He's you know he's nuts about it. You know, he's when you see him now, he's just just um, he like you said, he's a machine. He lives for it. So. When we're on tour, I'll be like, hey, man, let's go check out a movie, whatever it is. No, I'm training. I'm swimming. I'm swimming 20 miles at the Y. <laughs> he will not do anything but train. So this is a challenge for him, but it's also, I think, a challenge he's dying to, to take on because in the marathon world, the Boston Marathon is it. So um, I think he's going to absolutely kill it. There's only a couple ways you can run Boston. You can qualify depending on gender, age group, whether or not you're in a wheelchair heat or something like that. And then you can get a bib running for charity, which is how I got my bib. My finishing time would not qualify an 80-year-old woman to run the Boston Marathon. I'm not kidding. I looked it up. Hey, but you did it. You I did, did it. it. And I finished... So the question I'm going to have for, the, for the, the musicians I talk to between now and Marathon Monday is will John Connolly be able to run the marathon twice in the time it took me to run it once? What's your answer, Mark Tremonti? I'm, I'm... Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a friend would I be if I said no? Well, considering you asked him to do it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I, I have all the confidence in the world that he's going to come out of that with with just pride and kicking its ass. Are you sure. coming to Boston to cheer him on? Are you going to be here? I'll be on tour. Yeah, but I, I mean, I would love to be at that finish line. Well, we will be there for you. Marathon Monday is is such a special day for for us growing up here that it's the third in the Boston trifecta of drinking days. St. Patrick's Day, opening day at Fenway, Marathon Monday. Nice. So hey. we will be there for you. Well, at the finish line, have some some shots ready for him. He'll deserve it. <laughs> uh, I thought of you recently. I don't know if you saw the story that Steve Vai um, got reunited with his Swiss cheese guitar from the 80s. Did you see that story? I did. I saw it. Well, I saw a mention of it, but I didn't read it. So it got stolen from him in the 80s, and then somebody found it in a family attic in Mexico that somebody had bought it a while ago, and it got stashed. And it reminded you of the story you told me years ago about the guitar that you got stolen in Boston. Yes. Oh, yeah. That was, uh, that was a terrible time. We, uh, we were, back then, we were kids, so we would put all the radio station stickers on our band, or I'm sorry, on our trailer, so everybody knew that this was a band uh, touring around. And uh, when we woke up to get in the, in the van, we just saw the lock popped out onto the ground where the car was parked. And uh, I had the, the, the guitar I grew up playing in there that I babied. It didn't have a scratch on it. You know, and it, uh, it was a heartbreaker for sure. And you haven't gotten it back yet. Cause the last time you and I talked about this, that we were trying to get everybody to like scour internet listings to see if they could find it. Cause that's what happened with Steve. I. Yeah. I mean, that'd be amazing. Um, I mean, the only way I could tell if it was mine is there's a little sticker of the guitar shop, I think, under the pickup. So that's uh, uh, and what was the name of that guitar shop it was in Detroit. I'd figure it out, but that'll be amazing. Um, can we talk about you growing up and, you know, you you do sing, obviously, Sinatra very well. You are a songwriter and you're also a guitar player. Which one of those things came first? first did you walk around the house singing did you always write poems or was the guitar your gateway into being a musician yeah, it was 100 guitar and then um, vocal melodies came i loved just humming different melodies and um i never thought i was a good singer for i mean for years and years and years and years and years i'm done I still don't think i'm a great singer i think i do the big band jazz thing better than i do the rock thing to be honest with you um but uh, that that came in time, you know, singing when you're a songwriter and you sing constantly to, while you're writing songs, you just keep developing better pitch and better control of your voice. And uh, the guitar was really definitely the gateway to all that. Do you still have the first guitar you ever played? And was it electric or acoustic? It was electric. I had a black Les Paul imitation. It was called Tara, T-A-R-A. And I bought it for 10 bucks yeah, from a buddy of mine at school. He said, I'll sell you my guitar for $10 uh, if you join my band. So his name was Jeff Blake, one of my friends in Detroit. So I joined the band and uh, he taught me a little bit. And here we are. Do you still have it? I don't. I traded it. You know, I think most young guitar players, they want to get the next best thing. So I traded that guitar in. I think I sold it for a hundred bucks. So I made 10 times my investment on it. And then I bought a, uh, uh, Tokai, a Japanese, uh, more of like a single cutaway guitar. I'm sorry, a double cutaway guitar. 
And then from the Tokai, I sold that to get the Les Paul studio model. That was the one that got stolen. I have a theory about music that there's a couple phases of your musical journey. When you're a kid, you get gifted music, the soundtrack of your childhood. So whatever your parents listen to, the older siblings, your cool uncle. And then there's a line in the sand where you get exposed to something and you make the choice that that's what I like and your musical life changes. So what was the soundtrack to your childhood? And then what was it that you first claimed as your music? Yeah, so growing up, uh, my dad had records with, um, you know, like Joe Cocker and uh, Iron Butterfly, um, Deep Purple. My mother loved Rod Stewart. She listened to Rod Stewart all the time. Um, and then, you know, in the car, I absolutely love 70s soft rock. It's, you know, the Jerry Rafferty's of the world and Michael McDonald and um, yeah, all that stuff. It seals and crawl. All that stuff is the best to me. And um, And then one day, as you're growing up, you're a kid, you're trying to find your way. All the kids were listening to uh, the Beastie Boys. I remember there was like a group, one side of the group was like Beastie Boys and the other side of the people were listening to like alt rock, like um, uh, uh, Depeche Mode and stuff. So I was more on the Beastie Boys side until one night I couldn't fall asleep and I borrowed my brother's record. I said, hey man, what's that song I keep hearing about a sanitarium? And he gave me the Master of Puppets record, and from that moment on, it was like a, it was like a needle in my vein. I just could not get enough of it, and um, that was it. That was the turning point. Younger people, especially people that get their music digitally now, they don't define their identity the way that you're talking about back then when we were growing up. The music you listened to said everything about who you were as a person. Yeah, there's definitely groups. It was, uh, you know, in our schools back then, well, a lot of times you had the football players and the, you know, the, the, the jock folks and you had the musicians. And where I was from in Detroit, um, it wasn't, you know, everybody listened to rock there, it seemed like. When I, when I moved down to Florida, at first I didn't like it because at my school, nobody listened to rock, nobody, not a single person. I, I'd go in there and you'd have these kids – blasting um all their big bass you know bass stereos with with um whatever was you know on the radio at the time you know there was people listening to like the cc music factory and janet jackson like like acting tough listening to that I'm like what is going on here? you're like dude i'm from detroit we grew up listening to nugent and alice cooper yeah it was way it was a way different scene um but that being said imagine moving to florida from detroit with all your musical roots and your guitar and not fitting in right away. And that's when I became a songwriter because I had all the time in the world to spend by myself going, these kids don't know what their what music is good. I'm going to show them, you know. So that's that's when I bought my four track and learned how to write songs. Um, I, I always preface this question by saying I have no musical ability whatsoever. My musical career ended with the clarinet and the marching band in high school. But... But I'm surrounded by musicians and songwriters, and I'm fascinated by the process of it. So when you go to sit down to write a song, is it the riff first, the lyric first, the melody first? Like, like how does it start? Uh, it starts different every time. It, it, hopefully, it, hopefully it does. You know, if, you, if you're going about it the same way all the time, you're going to start doing the same thing. So I try to get different uh, things to inspire me if I... 
Um, if I'm just sitting there with a guitar, the guitar is going to come first and the melody is going to come second. Lyrics will come last usually. Sometimes lyrics come along with the melody if you're lucky. Um, but sometimes I could be walking um, or sitting in a restaurant and you hear something on the on the radio and you're like, wow, that would have been cool if it did this or it did that. And you're, you're going over it in your head and you're like, all right, uh, let me try to use whatever inspiration that was to write what I want to write. Um, and, he, you know, maybe the melody came first in that, that instance, but um, mainly I like to go online and just find a drum loop or, or, or program a drum loop and just go for it. Um, that way the music's coming first. I'm trying to spit out melodies as soon as I can. If I've got a great musical piece that can't fit a melody, it's not, it's not as important to me as a piece that can fit melody. Melody to me is, by far the most important thing for any song more important than the lyric more important than the music when you when you look at songwriting as a craft doesn't really matter the the type of music right so the cnc music factory in florida whatever it is that you're listening to it's been proven over and over again that a good song is a good song is a good song yeah so Rather than ask a favorite song, favorite album question, which anyone that loves music, it's near impossible. I ask this craft question. Can you give me an example of a song, regardless of artist or era, that you think is perfectly crafted? That you covet and go, man, I wish I wrote that song. That is what songwriting is. But then you got to tell me why. Um, I think Leonard Cohen. Um, Hallelujah could be one of the best written songs of all time. I think the um, the lyric is the lyrics are absolutely genius. Um, the melody is so emotional. It's it's just such a uh, you know it just borders on this religious experience when you hear that song. It's just this just, just um, deep thing. It's just hard to explain. It's just what it's this magical thing that music does. And that's a perfect example of uh, something that is intangible that can, can mean so much to you. When it comes to guitar playing, right? I told, I told Miles when he and I talked last that he's got this uncanny knack of surrounding himself with some of the best players out there, you included. Uh, now, Miles is an incredible guitar player himself. You know, he's, he's, uh, I think there's been quotes from me and Slash at some point saying that Miles is the best guitar player in the band. <laughs> he's he's really, really great. And, uh, you know, he'd be much better at, than me at sitting in with like jazz group and just comping chords and, and following charts and all that kind of thing. You know, he's, he's much more of a theory based player and he's got great feel and uh, very, very intelligent guitar player. I asked him when it comes to writing songs with you and with Slash, you know, he was like, no, Slash is a riff master. Like I would not. And I was like, what would Slash do if you brought him a riff? And he was like, he'd probably laugh and pat me on the head and say, oh, that's cute, Miles. Then I talked to Slash and he was like, I totally would not do that. <laughs> Miles writes great riffs. You know, he's, uh, you know, I, I say in interviews more and more that um, my producer, when me and Miles present music, he's like, it's hard to tell who's writing who. Who's writing what these days? Because like what, when I hear a heavy riff, I'll, I immediately think it's Mark, and then I I, I hear this, you know, this other uh, atmospheric melodic thing, and I think it's Miles, but it's Mark. So it's uh, I think the more you work with other artists, the more you kind of you're working for the you're trying to 
do what's right for the band. And I think you just kind of learn from one another what works and uh, you, you pick up each other's kind of influences and skills. Early in the pandemic, I sat down and had a really long conversation with Nuno Betancourt, who's from here, obviously. And we we had nothing else to do. So we talked for hours about really nerdy guitar stuff. And I bring it up because you're on tour with Mammoth WVH and with Wolfgang. Nuno told me a story about early on in Extremes days that Dweezil Zappa brought him to a Van Halen rehearsal. And mm-hmm. Eddie Van Halen invited him to play his rig. And Nuno described it as, finally, I'm going to play Eddie's guitar, Eddie's strings, Eddie's pedals, Eddie's amps, you know, cables, all of it. I'm going to live out my dream of sounding like Eddie Van Halen. And his soul was crushed because he sounded like Nuno Betancourt. Yeah. And that got me talking to guitar players about tone and feel. And so I wanted to talk to you about where you think a guitar player's tone comes from. Guitar player's tone comes from his fingers, for sure. I think uh, I just had this conversation earlier today about, um, I forget what guitar player it was, playing on these different amps and always sounding the same. But um, I think... 80 to 90% of it's in your fingers. I think if you throw yourself on a dumbbell amplifier, you're going to sound different than a, you know, than a high gain PV or something. But um, for the most part, it's your fingers. Um, and it's funny if you talk about him plugging into to Eddie's rig. Um, I just spoke to Wolfie the other day and I said, Hey man, do you still have that? Uh, your dad's Marshall from, you know, I'm talking like the running, running with the devil kind of tone. And he's like, yeah, I still have it. I actually used it on the new record. I just recorded um, so people are searching for that Brown sound. Wolfie just recorded with it on his new record. So that's pretty, that's insane. You know, I also got to see, you know, the Van Halen guys rehearse with Eddie right there in the room and heard his tone. And he was playing through his 5150, you know, maybe 5153 at the time or whatnot, but he sounded like Eddie. He sounded like Eddie on his old Marshalls. You know, it's his fingers. When you look at the passing of someone like Eddie, or you look at the more recent passing of Jeff Beck, can it even be calculated the influence on your instrument that those two individuals specifically had on guitar playing? No, that, I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, Eddie Van Halen could be the most famous guitar player of all time. I think, you know, the most recognizable player, um, he was just a game changer. And uh, I remember the exact second I heard the news, you know, I think it's just like one of those, it's one of those moments. It's like, do you remember when you turned on the news, you heard about nine 11, you know, exactly how, you know, where you were. Same thing when I heard about Eddie's passing and uh, Jeff Beck, um, he's on the Mount Rushmore of everybody's guitar list of best guitar players ever. He's irreplaceable. There is no there's nobody else. I've never heard anybody say, yeah, he sounds like Jeff Beck. I just don't, I, nobody says that, you know, um, he was a beautiful, his, he was one of the most emotive players ever. And I saw him live in Orlando at the house of blues. And it was just, it, it was just, it was crazy how, how emotional you get when you watch somebody that good play. The day that, that Eddie passed, I had just finished an interview with Kevin Martin from Candlebox. We literally said goodbye got done and the news broke and I called him right back. Cause I was like, I have to get your, like, 
I can't not talk to you about this news that just happened. He told me a really funny story that he got invited years ago to play on a last minute golf foursome. And they said, oh, yeah, this guy, this guy, this guy and Ed. And he, they didn't tell him who Ed was. And Eddie showed up with his golf club seat belted into the passenger seat of a Ferrari. And I was like, if that's not an Eddie Van Halen story. I had no idea he played golf at all or had golf clubs. That's awesome. Yeah. In a, in a, like a convertible Ferrari seat belted into the passenger seat. So, so when you talk about where were you, everybody knows where they were that day. Oh yeah. I was on my bike. I know I had, I was, uh, just riding my bike and got the my phone um, buzzed and I checked it out and it just uh, man it just uh, one of those things where you almost faint you know it was it was, uh, it was getting it was like getting kicked in the chest for sure it's horrible. Well, before I let you go, I, I want to circle back about the marathon real quick. One of the things that I did to train and to prepare because I think music people do everything kind of with music in mind, is that I prepared a very specific playlist and trained with that playlist so that certain songs would come up at certain points. Because I'm not a machine like John Connolly, so I needed the motivation of having certain songs at certain points in the run to help me. And... um. I had three of your songs on the soundtrack. Uh, that's, all, that's an honor. Ties That Bind, Come to Life, and Before Tomorrow Comes, there will never be a day that I don't hear those songs, and I will know exactly where I was on the course. Like That's amazing. It, it literally, like, I can feel the pain and agony. <laughs> And you're like, I hate these songs now. They remind me of. <laughs> Are you playing any of those songs tonight? Before Tomorrow Comes is in the set list for sure. Okay. Tonight. That song, I will be feeling the pain of finishing the marathon when you play that song tonight. That's number four in the set list tonight. All right. Well, I will be there. I'm psyched to. This is the first time I'm going to see this new venue, Roadrunner. It's nice, right? It's, it's definitely, it's awesome. Well, great. I will see you tonight. I'm so excited to um, be able to hear some of the new songs live for the first time. And uh, I'm really glad that we got to catch up. And thank you for challenging John to tackle our beloved marathon. Thank you for talking about it. And um, hopefully people go and donate to the cause in his honor. I think, you know, I, I think most people can just go to Tremonti. Uh, I'm sorry, to take a chance for charity.org.com and uh, support John through there. So. Let's raise some money. I'll put the link right here in the interview so that everybody can find it easy. Perfect. Thank you so much. All right. We'll see you tonight. I'm so excited. See you tonight. There he is, the one and only Mark Tremonti. If you check out the show notes of this episode, you're going to find the link to the corresponding playlist. And in that playlist is a bunch of Mark's music, including a lot of those Frank Sinatra covers that he recorded for charity. In the show notes, you're also going to find the link to John Connolly's fundraiser for the Boston Marathon. And if you can, please make a generous donation. Running the Boston Marathon, I don't care how good a shape you're in, is tough. You're also going to find all of the links to find Mark Tremonti online and Alter Bridge online as well. And you're also going to find all of the Mistress Carrie links, too. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, share, and like the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. 
Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep. The Situation Report gives you all of your rock news, music headlines, entertainment info in just about five minutes. Plus, you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. And you can join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern for my video show on my official Facebook page, Cocktails in the War Room. You'll find all of those episodes, all of the details about the podcast, and so much more at mistresscarry.com. And don't forget to check out the shop, the Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.